We're going to continue this morning in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, this great epistle. And today we look at verses 11 to 18. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. And he might reconcile them both into one body, to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to those who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Jesus Christ brings peace. Jesus Christ breaks barriers. He brings peace with sinful man, and holy, eternal God. And he also brings peace, as we see today here, in a reconciliation between Jew and Gentile. He makes the two one in Christ. And we see in this journey, last time as we looked at Ephesians 2, this journey from separation to being dead in sin and transgression, today to reconciliation, and being made alive. This great salvation, which in very much Ephesians lends itself to a rags and riches story, as we have seen in chapter 1 and 2, what we have in Christ, this is your salvation. It's my salvation. But today we look at it, it's not so much today about you. It's not so much about me, but collectively the we, the body of Christ. We have been, become part of the family, the family of God. The body of Christ where Christ is the head of the body. Those who are born of the Spirit make up these people called the church. Now the church is beyond the building. Many people will often think the church in Tottenville. But what about the nucleus inside the church? What about the people, the ecclesia, those called out by God, separated by God and for God? And our text this morning, we see something here that was revealed, hidden in the old, now revealed in the new. And we're going to look at that subsequently as we get to chapter 3 and beyond. But we learn that God has revealed a desire to unite Many people groups, many nations, many kindreds, many tongues, many personalities, many body types, many accents, ethnicities, 
many nations into one. And ultimately, all these ethnicities and nations make up one race, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, God's holy nation, God's own special people. We become one by the atonement of Christ, the shed blood on the cross. Now in the New Testament, we see the establishment of the church in the book of Acts. And Ephesians is going to speak quite a bit about the church. And in the Gospels, we see that Jesus has a plan. Jesus speaks about him building his church. I will build my church and the gates of what? Hell will not prevail. This is not some human organization that goes up and down. This is not a human organization that may go out of business. This is the church, the supernatural church of Jesus Christ. Now Jesus initially comes to the lost sheep in the house of Israel. But as he states in John 10, 16, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. And they will become one flock with one shepherd. Jesus here is alluding to the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, formerly separate from the covenants and promises of God. But as we learn today, now, there is equality at the cross. It is by grace we are saved, and grace levels the ground. Equal status with God they now have, but this was not always the case. As we have seen thus far in chapter 2, we look at the before and after scenario. It is not always the case. They were at one time separate from Christ. As we looked last time at how the Gentile has gone from death to life in Christ, we look at that column. We looked at it like it's an infomercial, the before and after. On the left side of your screen, metaphorically here, what was in that column that before? Dead in sin and transgression. By nature, child of God? No. Child of wrath. Under the influence of the world, Satan in the flesh. This is the before. But what happened? we we'll get to the after. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, for which he saved us, even when we were dead in sin and transgression, by grace we have been saved. That's what happened. That's what got us over to the other side. So we look at this before and after, and as it continues in these verses to the end of chapter 2, we look at this from this perspective today. Verses 11 to 12 is the state of separation from Christ, the before. Verses 13 to 18, we see from separation to unification in Christ. And we're going to look at the end at maintaining this unification, maintaining unity. We pick it up at verse 11. Remember, look back. Remember when you were formerly Gentiles in the flesh who are called the uncircumcision. Remember, look back. We get a greater appreciation of where we are today and we, where we are going by looking back. That's the intent here. You were Gentiles in the flesh 
What is a Gentile, a non-Jewish person? These were pagans, essentially. They did not know the true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, we see this term, the uncircumcision. And that is a term of derision. It's true, but it is a derogatory term. And they would experience primarily two types of alienation. There was a lot of prejudice. There was a lot of discrimination. There was animosity that existed between the Jew and Gentile, and there were barriers that seemed to be irreconcilable. Gentiles were referred to as dogs by Jews. Many Pharisees would pray a prayer along the lines of this, Oh God, I give thanks that I am a Jew and not a Gentile. It was unlawful to aid a Gentile woman in giving birth, for that would bring another heathen into the world. From the Jewish perspective, a Jewish woman would not aid a Gentile woman because they didn't want to bring another heathen. Remember Jesus' encounter with a half-Jewish woman, the Samaritan woman. Jesus would ask her, give me a drink. And what was her response? Do you know? He said to her, give me a drink. And the Samaritan woman says to Jesus, how is it that you are a Jew are asking me for a drink, though I am a Samaritan woman, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. But that never stopped Jesus, because Jesus is the liberator. Jesus gives us liberty. And continuing, just to know how deep these barriers were, many Jews would not even travel through Samaria. They would go through a longer route. And Samaritans were half Jewish. But the same could be said for the Gentile. Because there was no love lost between these two groups. The Gentiles would equate the Jews as being enemies of the human race. So we continue with verse 11. These Gentiles in the flesh who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. So-called circumcision, the NASB would render. Which is performed in the flesh by human hands. What exactly does this all mean? Well, first and foremost... The so-called circumcision. This, what Paul is saying here is a circumcision made by hands. Now circumcision is the identifying mark of, Jew, of Judaism at that time in the Old Testament. Since it was the physical sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And with this came, from the Jewish perspective, a pride and an arrogance. Physical circumcision done in hands connotes that the circumcision affects the body, but not the heart, most importantly. So there are limitations on this sort of circumcision. Now in the New Testament, we see that circumcision or uncircumcision physically is irrelevant. It's actually obsolete. I'm going to read you a couple of scriptures because I want you to see this for yourself. Galatians 5, 6, Paul writes, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. Galatians 6, 15, For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Paul tells the Colossians in Colossians 2, 11, And in him, in Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision performed without hands. 
Circumcision of the heart now supersedes any mark, any physical characteristic. And it's something that Paul did not just make up. Paul is getting this from the Old Testament. Paul would have known. Circumcised on the eighth day, a Pharisee of Pharisee from the tribe of Benjamin. There was a lot of affluence in his religious stature, and he would know that. Let's consider Deuteronomy 16, 16. Metaphorically speaking, the circumcision of heart finds its way back, looking back in the Old Testament. Circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. Deuteronomy 16, 16. Jeremiah 4, 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart. In addition, Deuteronomy 36. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. Circumcision was the primary mark of Judaism, but it's now obsolete as Paul will write in Romans, in the New Testament, Romans 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit. The Spirit. The Holy Spirit. If you have the Spirit of God, you belong to God. It's the mark and seal of a person of God. And now Jews and Gentiles, making up all the nations, can receive this by faith. And Paul continues in verse 12 with the before and after. Remember that you are at one time separate from Christ, from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. The second type of alienation that the Gentile was experienced was a spiritual alienation. Because Gentiles were people that were cut off from God in several ways. Now looking at this, this could be a little, a little confusing. At least it was for me some years ago. Separate from Christ is the primary category here that we're going to look at. <clears throat> separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. What does separate from Christ and Israel have to do with anything? Well, understand there were privileges given to ethnic Israel. Privileges was exclusive to Israel. A Gentile could only partake in the blessings of Israel by becoming what's known as a proselyte. A Gentile needed to convert to Judaism. We see that in 1 Kings 8.41. So they're separate from Christ. There's really five categories excluded from Israel. Separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. And the end result here is having no hope without God in the world. What do you mean by strangers to the covenants of promise? Well, God did not make any covenants with Gentile nations. They were to Israel only. I, I see a good analysis of, this, analysis of this in an article in Table Talk magazine from June 2011 issue. Now, speaking of separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth, the idea, and I quote, here may be better rendered as separated from the hope. Of Christ. That is separated from the hope of the Messiah. 
even though many Jews before Christ's incarnation never entered into a saving relationship with the Lord God Almighty, the nation as a collective whole had the revealed promise of the one who would come, crush the serpent, speaking of Genesis 3.15, and rule in righteousness forever. The Gentile nations as a whole had no such assurance. So, I want you to think of these five things as a sandwich. Separate from Christ this year, having no hope without God in the world here, all the other stuff in the middle. Let's consider what the text is telling us. Put it any which way you want. Put the sandwich, turn it around. Without God in the world, no hope. Is that fair? Is that right? Yeah. Without Christ is without God. Without Christ is without hope. You don't have Jesus Christ. You don't have God. You're hopeless. All of these terms, those three, are synonymous. Without Christ, brethren, you are without God. Looking back, remember. But Christ bridges the gap. And he fulfills all the promises of these covenants. Now, this is simply unacceptable for many people to accept. They could understand this. But they will say, what an exclusive, narrow-minded way. Which, by the way, happens to be God's way. Because most people do acknowledge God. Atheism, as of 2019 in the world, was less than 10%. Maybe on the rise in America, but most people will acknowledge a God of some sorts. People have their theories, they have their opinions, they have their superstitions, and people have their gods. Everyone worships and serves something. People may do that unknowingly by serving themselves. There is nothing new under the sun, and idolatry is very prominent. It's been prevalent throughout the ages. But there is one true God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we come to know this God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Mankind can have all the gods they want, but understand, there is salvation and no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That is Jesus Christ. Do you trust in Jesus Christ? Do you adhere to Jesus Christ? Do you rely upon Jesus Christ? Do you worship Jesus Christ? Is he your Lord? That's a question we have to ask. There may be someone listening to this message. And the text is telling us they're hopeless. And they may not feel hopeless. But the text is stating, yes, without Christ, you're hopeless. But hopeless becomes hopeful as situations change, as lives change, as destinies change through Jesus Christ. Because Christ is the hope of mankind. Verses 12 to 18, we go from separation now to unification in Christ. Christ breaks the chains of sin between and the barrier between man and God. But now we also see that he reconciles people groups. But now in Christ Jesus, verse 13, you who were formerly far off, have been brought near by the blood 
of Christ. Very similar to verse 4. But in Christ. But now in Christ Jesus. Now this terminology here, uh, it's rabbinical in a sense. It describes the Gentiles as being far off. Basically, it's Isaiah 15, Isaiah 57, 19. Brought near describes proselytes to Judaism. But right now, in this passage, we see that being brought near clearly distinguishes that Gentiles or whomever now have been brought near by Christ and have full access to God. Full access to the promises and covenants of Israel. Full access. You don't need any external signs. You don't need to join any religion. One need to be born again by the Spirit in Christ. Now, this was alluded to in the Old Testament. And Peter is going to preach a sermon, a powerful sermon in the book of Acts, chapter 2, 39. And listen to what he speaks at that time. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. That's that language again. As many as the Lord, our God, will call to himself. Every person who trusts in the Lord shall have salvation. Whosoever, we are part of the whosoevers, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord, will be saved. Christ brings us near, how? By his death, by the blood, by the cross. Christ is the Passover lamb, whose blood causes the judgment to pass over sinners. The blood of Christ makes a man and woman righteous. The blood gives remission of sin. And reconcile sinful man to Yahweh. And now as we see, reconcile sinful people to Yahweh and to one another. Because, as verse 14, we see, as it is written, For he himself, speaking of Christ, is our peace, who made both groups into one. And broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Now, only God does this. But first of all, he himself is our peace. What do we mean? Peace can be a subjective thing. I could feel a peaceful feeling. I could feel peaceful today, chaos tomorrow. What do you mean peaceful? Is it when you go to your prayer closet and you pray? Do you feel a sense of peace? That could very well be true. But what we see here is, the, again, it's the Christ the Messiah giving us vertical peace to Yahweh. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5.1, a positional established peace. That's yours. And he destroys the hostility between sinful man and holy God. But what he's saying here in the text, he also destroys this barrier. This barrier that existed between Jew and Gentile. And he makes the people group one. One nation. One new man. One body. The family of God. That's what it is. 
Christ is the ultimate liberator. And Christ breaks barriers, and in doing so, he brings equality. Because it's by grace we are saved. At the foot of the cross is equal ground. All believers, no matter of their natural ancestry, may inherit the blessings promised to believing Abraham. Galatians 3.8 Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. There is no longer barriers. We may put up barriers, but Christ has broken the barriers between the people groups. Broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, verse 14. What does this mean? Paul is speaking about a literal wall in a Jewish temple. Now, in the Jewish temple, a wall would have separated the Gentiles and the inner court from the worshipers, the Jewish worshipers, who would go in a certain place and be had the restrictions, the holiness codes of the Mosaic Covenant. The Gentiles were not allowed. And the literal wall symbolized the division. For this reason, the wall was symbolic also of more division, social, religious, but ultimately spiritual separation that kept the Jews and Gentiles away, and this also added to the hostility and the discrimination between both. There were warnings, this was serious, for the Gentiles to keep out, keep out or die. Serious business. A rumor went around where Paul was being accused of bringing a Gentile into this temple. We see that in Acts 21-28. So how did Christ bring this wall down. Listen to the language in verse 15. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinances. By abolishing in his flesh the substitutionary atonement of Christ. In his flesh, by his blood, we see the cross. This is the language This is the biblical language of the atonement. Now, Christ fulfilled the moral law by keeping all its requirements. Through his death, Christ abolished the Old Testament ceremonial laws, the Sabbath restrictions, the feasts, the washing, the sacrifices, which were given in the Old Testament, Old Covenant period of redemptive history. So the barrier that is now between these people groups has been abolished. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, Galatians 3.13. Now, verse 16, why? That he might create in himself, in himself, one new man in place of the two, making peace. Again, the peace with God comes And consequently, the peace with mankind, with God's people, is a vertical peace that comes. Peace with God through Yahweh, but then there's the horizontal peace with the people of God. Reconciliation. That he might reconcile them into one body. Now we see in this this text... One new man, 
one body, spiritually, spiritually, ethnic distinctions are now abolished as well. The two become one in the body of Christ through the atonement. As Christ has put to death the hostility of sin between God and man and the hostility between people groups. Thus establishing peace, the cross at Calvary. This is the only way this works. This is the only option. You may have some sort of unity in the natural realm for a period. Peace will come and go. But what we're seeing here is a reconciliation that is eternal. Eternal between all nations, all people groups. And the message of Christ we see in verse 17 that he came and preached peace to you who were far off, who were far away. That's the language of Isaiah again. Far away is that Gentile. And peace to those who were near. Peace to the Jew as well, because sin would ultimately separate these people. Christ is our peace. Now the message, ironically, of peace will often bring hostility. Now we know that Jesus Christ came into the world and took upon the enmity and the hostility. He came to destroy the works of Satan. He came to save his people from their sins. We know this. But he who brought peace was given the hostility. And the message that he brought is the peaceful message of reconciliation. But how often does that bring hostility? How often does that bring anger? And we preach this message. Be reconciled to God. This message of peace. And there are people around the world who get killed for this message. The message of peace. Because it doesn't always bring peace. And the reason is, it is a divisive message. The end result of peace. But it's a very divisive message. It's a message that declares that there is a right way. There is an only way. And it's a message that says there is a wrong way. A right way that leads to eternal life and a wrong way that leads to death. A very inclusive message. And it says that a person needs peace. It doesn't matter where you have come from. It doesn't matter how good of a person you think you are. You need to be reconciled to God. And this need could only be met. Only be met in Christ. And that is why it brings such hostility at times. And it's through him that we have found this path of peace. It's through him, Jesus Christ, that anyone will find this path of peace. In verse 18, through him we have our access in one spirit. Unto the Father. Unrestricted access to a child of God with the Spirit. Unrestricted. Now here we go to Hebrews 10, 19 and 20. With this access, because of what Christ did, as we looked at in the verses prior, in Ephesians, have confidence. Hebrews 10, 19 to 20. To enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil. That is 
through his flesh. It is Jesus who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man come to the Father but by me. That's a divisive message. But ultimately brings peace. Those who have the Spirit of God have the access. And a matter of fact, this is the only way of access to eternal life to God the Father. Young people, do you have the Spirit of God? Do you come to God? Do you access God? Your parents cannot get you there. They can teach you. They can help you. They can guide you. But you must come. You must be born of the Spirit to have this access. We simply cannot overlook this now. It's the mark of ownership, this Spirit. Well, circumcision is now obsolete. It's the circumcision of heart and we have sealed with the Spirit of God. Now, we live in a time where people may come in power and want to take away our unity. They want to take away our liberty. Religious liberties, really, in the guise of unity. But one thing they can never take away from us is our peace with God. The fact that we have access to God, regardless of any situation that will ever befall us here on earth. It is our privilege in Christ. And we should come at all times. At all times. Not just when things are bad. We should go and access God. When things are good. When things are not so good. We ought to be praying. We ought to be rejoicing. We ought to be praising. Because we have this access to God. It is our privilege. Understand we can approach God freely. Because we have our access in one spirit unto the Father. By the Spirit, through Christ, we have the free, unrestricted access. All in this one spirit. All in this one body. All in this one family who are indwelt and empowered with this spirit. Now, we have been united in Christ. Whether you think not, whether you like it or not, whether you think it's, you're not really getting it just yet, you are one in Christ. One body as he is your peace. But there comes a responsibility in our behalf to maintain this unity, this positional unity that has practical implications as well. Now you have seen this in the text. Would you say amen? We are one. Amen? I understand the text. But I think the question that begs to be asked here is, sometimes, why is it that we see so much division in this one body, in this one family? Well, the simple answer is, we're sinful. That's the simple answer. We're still fallen. And there could be times that man, sinful man who was redeemed... People in this body will construct barriers that Christ has already torn down. We can allow our internal prejudices, our internal pride to cause disunity. 
We can become so pharisaical with traditions and non-essential doctrines that attack the unity, and that's unnecessary. Now, let me just say something. I'd be remiss if I didn't say this, and this is so important. Without doctrine, you don't have unity, first and foremost. There is no unity in unsound doctrine. Doctrine divides, but that is a good and necessary thing. Talking about essentials. The body of Christ must adhere and have the essentials. Salvation, soteriology, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The word of God, inerrant, infallible. But what we don't have to be so divisive on is secondary doctrines, eschatologies, and how we do worship, and certain types of communion, certain types of church services. We need the essentials, non-negotiable. Make no mistake. Because unsound doctrine leads to unsound practice. True believers should be adhering to true doctrine. There needs to be a discernment on our behalf, though. We want unity. We want to be peaceable. Absolutely. But we cannot accept all things, all ideologies, all views and philosophies that may be espoused by those who profess Christ for the sake of unity. Just because something has a hashtag Jesus behind it doesn't mean it's sound. We cannot compromise with blatant error for the sake of unity. If we do that, we have a superficial unity at best. In the essentials, there should be no division among ourselves. There may be division with those who are not of the essentials. We are never called to compromise. Now, in the family of God, in the body of Christ, there may be disagreements on these secondary doctrines, but disagree peaceably. As we venture into the next coming years, as the body of Christ, and it's extended way beyond Tottenville, folks, if the Lord should tarry, it would be prudent for us not to be squabbling over the non-essentials, but to unite. Providing things are correct. As we have often quoted, I think it's applicable for us today. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Now, there may be a spirit-filled sister or brother who maybe they have rubbed you the wrong way. We'll just use that to keep it nice, okay? And in this family, there are siblings that you may have more in common with than others. It's like a natural family as well. And in the family, you may have differences. But whatever differences you have, I want you to know. Let's think about this. This is really, really ministered to me. Whatever differences you have, you have one essential common thing. Jesus Christ. If we find ourselves starting to harbor animosity towards someone in the body, someone who belongs to Christ, by the way. Do we realize when we harbor that animosity, that animosity that the Lord puts up with them? The Lord puts up with us as well. The Lord loves that person, and Christ died for them. Stop and think. I'm not saying that we have this. It's a good reminder, as the text tells us, as the collective body of Christ. Stop and think. 
Do we have resentment in our hearts towards another brother and sister in the family of God? Let's stop and think about the value that God places on you, as we see in Ephesians, is the very same value that God places on them as well. And if they have offended you, just know they've probably offended the Heavenly Father way more than you. But yet God blesses them, blesses us. Yet God prospers them, prospers us. Not only deals with us, and he's patient with us, but he's in the process of changing us, which is a good thing. I was talking to a sister after the first service, and she brought something out that was very interesting. He's patient with them. And understand, if someone has a resentment against you, you are not responsible for how they feel, but you're responsible for how you react. And we can react and exercise the fruit of patience and tolerance and love and mercy with that person. Now, what causes division in the body? It could be personal favoritism. We see it in the epistle of James, chapter 2. When a man of, uh, of lack of affluence comes in, a poor man, and we say, sit in the back. Not we, the body of Christ. Go sit in the back. And the man with more prominence comes, we give him the better seat. That is unacceptable in God's eyes. Because in James 2, 5, James writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Listen, my beloved brethren, did God not choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? If that's God's person, I have to be careful how I treat them. What else causes division in James? Well, we see the self-centered ambition. Why are there quarrels among you? Because it's selfishness. It's self-ambition. That could be something as well. But may that never be said of us. And praise God. We don't have that. But let's be on guard. One of the things that can cause practical disunity though. In any congregation at any time. Is the sin of the tongue. Prides and prejudice. Yes. The tongue. We see this in Ephesians 4.31. Stop and think before, maybe it's even inadvertent, we slander. We can slander and grieve a brother and sister, but more importantly, we can grieve God, the Holy Spirit. We are called to maintain unity. We have unity. But how does this positional unity affect us practically? Okay, is there the pride? Is there the prejudice? Is there something? Maybe we addressed it in communion today. With that said, have we discriminated against a true brother and sister? Really harbored ill feelings? It's not the end of the world, but let's correct it. It's correctable. Very correctable. Does this reality change for you as it changed for me? That person belongs to God. That's simple. Why is that some big revelation? It was for me. I have to be reminded that that person is God's person. They may be off. They may be wrong. And that doesn't mean I agree. But I have to disagree peaceably. And I have to approach it 
with grace and reverence for God. Based on what the text teaches us today, we are one in Christ. We are unified in Christ and with each other if you have the Spirit of God. The reality is, our man-made practices can reconstruct barriers that Christ, as we see, has pulled down. Now, our thinking must align itself up with the Word of God. Not our flesh, not our pride, not the world, but the Word. And that can be a challenge. Other disagreements. How are you handling it? And you may even be right, but disagree peaceably. Because remember, what supersedes any disagreement we have is Jesus Christ. And how we deal with one another is important. How do we respond practically? If repentance is in order, that's a good thing. Pastor George said a couple of weeks ago, when we, we don't want to harden our hearts, when we have that contrition, it's a very good thing in our Christian walk. Let's have that. Let's not, let's not make something up if it's not there. Let's not overreact. But if it's a situation where we need to repent, let's do it. How else can we respond? Well, there's a prescription for Christian unity in the body in chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. And that's on page 1171. And we're going to close with this. This is a prescription for unity in the body of Christ. Now understand, providing that doctrine is correct and people are walking correctly, we have to be observant to the Word of God. And Paul writes in chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, this prescription for unity... Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. Now here's how we do it. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called into one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. We are one in Christ. Praise the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we give thanks, Lord. We give thanks, Father, for what you have done. Father, Son, Spirit. In Jesus Christ, deconstructing and breaking the barriers that separate man to God. Reconciling us. Thank you, Lord. Reconciling sinful human beings to God and to each other. By the cross at Calvary. And now we have this Spirit. We are marked and sealed. With the Spirit of God. We belong to God. And Father, may we do our due diligence to nurture the unity in the body. In Jesus' name, amen.